Take your Bibles and turn to Romans. Today we begin a new adventure as we walk through the book of Romans. This is a fantastic book of the Bible. Uh, Many have called this Paul's magnum opus or his great work. And it's considered this because of its incredible depth of theology. And yet it still maintains an amazing practicality. And in this book, Paul presents one of the clearest presentations of the gospel, what the gospel is, and then presents what this means for everyday life. And as we walk through this book, we will be continually confronted with the gospel. We'll be forced to clearly define what exactly the gospel is, and we'll be challenged to live the gospel in our everyday life. And we'll be encouraged then to share the gospel. So I invite you to join with me on this journey by turning to Romans chapter 1. And as we begin, Paul begins with the main idea of the entire book. The gospel is powerful. Let's look at the first 15 verses. We'll not make it through all of them today, but we'll look at them. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing I may I mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least at last succeed in coming to you for I long to see you. That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Now, admittedly, we'll not make it through this full text today. Uh, Paul has just completed his third missionary journey. He's taking a monetary gift from the churches in Galatia to take back to the church there in Jerusalem uh, who were suffering from a drought. And his plan is then to travel to Antioch to give a report there in his home church and then to begin another journey. And his hope is to travel to Spain. And along the way, he'll stop in Rome and meet with the church there. And and this letter serves as an introduction to the church there in Rome because Paul did not plant that church. In fact, he'd never visited it. 
as he writes, he presents the gospel in such a way as to say, we believe the same thing. And it should impact us in every way that we live. And, and this is true because the gospel is powerful. It's not a stale, dry, weak concept. It is powerful. It's a powerful and true reality that when we accept in faith, changes our life. One of the challenges today, I think, is that we don't really believe the power of the gospel. We don't really believe that the gospel is all that powerful. Perhaps we've not really actually experienced that power ourselves. Perhaps we've become so familiar with Christianity, we've been saved for so long that we've just forgotten the power of the gospel. And right at the outset, Paul reminds us of the power of the gospel, that it's powerful in everyday life. And he does so in three ways, through the author, through the recipients, and through the purpose of this book. Let's begin with the first proof of the power of the gospel, the author of this book, Paul himself. He says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now, now I'll not spend time this morning reminding us too much of Paul. We've done that multiple times as we've looked at the other books we've looked at. However, the way that he introduces himself in this book is just a little bit different. Notice the three ways he describes himself. He says he is a servant of Christ Jesus. That word servant there is an interesting word. It means literally a slave. This word doulos or slave, it's not referring to a hired servant who could, who could come and go as he pleased. No, a slave was a person who had been purchased. And once purchased, he became his master's possession. There were no less than six Greek words for servitude that Paul could have chosen here. And from these Greek words that Paul might have chosen, any of them expresses the idea of servitude. But he deliberately passed over the weakest words and chose the very strongest word for slave that describes the most absolute servitude. That was a powerful description because in the first century Roman world, there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. And the vast majority of them were forced into slavery. They were kept there by law. Some of the more educated and skilled slaves did hold significant positions in a household or a business and were treated with respect. But most slaves were treated much like personal property. No better than anything else, and considered little better than work animals. They had virtually no rights under the law. In fact, they could even be killed with impunity, with no repercussions by their masters. And so this description is important because it describes for us the power of the gospel. 
And it does so in this way because the gospel takes us from slavery to sin and it puts us into slavery to the glorious master, Jesus Christ. And further, this reveals that the gospel is to be lived out in everyday life. Often we think about about Christian liberty. We're free to live, however, but that's not what it is. Liberty is liberty in Christ. Removal from slavery to sin to become slaves to God. It means that we're not free to live however we want, but to live as God desires. This is what Paul is trying to tell the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, when he says, Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own, for you're bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which belong to God. So Paul, at the outset, introduces himself as God's slave, reminding us that through the gospel, we have the privilege of being God's slave as well. Secondly, he introduces himself as the apostle. And here Paul is referring to his calling by God to the special office of service. He was an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ and was called to found the church. This calling can be seen on three separate occasions in Paul's life. In Galatians 1.5, he tells us that he was set apart from birth. Excuse me, one fifteen. He says, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. We see as well, he was called in Acts chapter 9. We know this account, the road to Damascus. As he is going to persecute the Christians and Jesus appears to him in glory. And Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, when he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. But even then, Paul did not immediately enter into service to God. For about a decade, he ministered in the church and mentored under other men. Until finally, in Acts 13, the Spirit works in the men in the church there in Antioch. We're told in Acts 13, 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Saul, also known as Paul. He's set apart as an apostle and his whole purpose as an apostle is to expand and proclaim the gospel of Christ. And he tells us that in his third description that he is set apart for the gospel. He's appointed for the gospel. And here's our first introduction to the gospel in Romans. And it's a good time to ask what exactly this gospel is. What does it mean? That's not a word that is natural to the English language. Gospel is a word which literally means the good news. And right here, we're introduced to this good news. It's the gospel of God. It's God's good news. The most important thing about the gospel is that it's of God. It's it's not man's good news, but God's good news for man. It's the good news that although we were sinners, although we are imperfect, God created a way by which we can be made good. And it's only through Jesus. The gospel is all about God. 
It's all about Jesus, what he did, his life of perfect obedience, his atoning death on the cross for our sin, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven and and his his outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon the church. So Paul describes himself as a slave purchased by Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel. And yet in its truest sense, we could all say that that is a description of us as believers as well. We are purchased by the blood of Christ. We're called to be his saints. And we are separated unto him. He purchased us with his own blood. He called us. And now we're separated. The gospel is powerful because through it, God purchased us to himself. He called us to be his representatives and he separated us apart to be pictures of the gospel and to share the gospel. And Paul is an incredible picture of that power. A man who prior to salvation was not just uninterested in the gospel, but was actually in war against the gospel, killing and imprisoning all who would follow it. And yet through God's glorious grace, The gospel captured his heart and changed his life. The second proof that we have of the power of the gospel is the book's recipients, the Roman Christians. We're going to skip a few verses and come back to them later. In verse number seven, we're introduced to these believers. He says, to all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I mention, uh, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that is, I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And as we look at these verses talking about this church in Rome that Paul is writing this book to, we can look at two aspects about this church. The first is who they are, and then the second will be what they are. Let's talk first about who they are. Who are these Christians in Rome? It's important to note that this church in Rome was not planted By Paul, much of the Roman world, the Gentile churches there could trace their roots back to Paul as their founder, the one who planted them, but not this church in Rome. Most likely, Jews who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost were saved, gloriously confronted with the gospel of Christ by Peter and the other apostles, were saved, and then as they went back home, They planted a church there in Rome. An incredible statement to the power of the gospel is that now, decades later, this church is not only still surviving, it is thriving. It is a foundational church in the Gentile world. All because a handful of men and women, saved by the grace of God, committed themselves to the work of God, And planted that church back in their home. And we know two things about them. There in verse 7 he says. To those who are in Rome loved by God. And called 
to be saints. First, we see that they are loved by God. What an incredible message this is. You see, all men are in some sense loved by God. We see in John 3.16 that God loves the world. But apart from faith, this love of God can only be that of compassion. A common grace on all people. It becomes an intimate love. Like that of a father to their child through faith and salvation. Only through grace by faith. You see, this gospel changes our status with God. All men receive that common grace, but we have received special grace. All are loved by God as his creation, but we are loved by God as his children. And this is the message of the gospel. That God loves you. You're in a world... We're surrounded by all kinds of mental health issues, we're told. People who struggle with self-love. And we're told that it's hard to find love. And people are seeking for love. This is why, as we'll see in a couple of weeks, the sexual revolution is running rampant. Because we all want love. We live in a world of hate, a world that is divided, a world that is antagonistic, a world that is frustrated. And oftentimes, even the ones that we thought loved us, let us down. But here's the message. You are loved by God. And this is a love that will never let you go. And Paul's going to build on this when we get to chapter 8. Where we're told that there is nothing that can separate us from this love. In fact, he concludes that chapter, one of the most important chapters in all the Bible, with the statement, I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth. And in case I forget anything, no created thing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's really important for us to remember. Because every one of us often passes through waters that are deep and hard. We have felt this through physical challenges. The doctor informs us of yet another unfortunate, should we say, diagnosis. We have seen this in financial struggles. When we need $2 and $2 to equal $25. We've seen this and felt this struggle in relational challenges, when friends and family forsake us or stab us in the back. We felt it over the last year and a half with all the struggles that COVID has brought. Struggling with decisions that are made, struggling with challenges that it's brought. And sometimes, in our lowest moments, we begin to wonder, 
God, God, where are you at? God, I've served you. God, I've sacrificed for you. Where are you? And the gospel reminds us, God loves you. He's never failed. He'll never leave or forsake you. God loves you. And we'll see as we work through Romans that because of that love, we ought to extend that love to others. So right at the outset, as Paul is writing this church in Rome that has already undergone severe persecution, that in a few years is going to face even more intense persecution, he's reminded them, you're loved by God. What an incredible statement. But he doesn't stop there. Not only does God love you, this is not an ethereal love. It's not what our world today often refers to as love that is fallen into and then fallen out of as if it's some kind of accident. No, this love has an action. He says they're loved by God, but also by God, they are called to be saints. The word call used by Paul here is used to express an effectual calling. It's not meaning some kind of invitation, but the more powerful and irresistible reaching out of God in grace to bring people into his kingdom. He's saying God intentionally brought you into his kingdom and called you to be saints. And the important part of this calling to be saints is the idea that we belong to the Lord. It's, it's referring to the act by which the Lord himself acted on us to make us believers and to make us saints. What's interesting here is our, many of our translations put the word to be in there, called to be saints. But literally it means that we are called saints. We already are saints. And what does he mean by saints? He literally means holy ones. You are called holy. You're set apart from everyday use, dedicated to God. You are a nobility before God because Christ has honored us by calling us. And he honored this church by drawing them from the defilement of paganism and raising others from external concentration of the gods of the ancient people to concentrating on the one new God. The one true God. And for us, he has called us from the false worships of this world of consumerism and secularism and politics. And he's called us to serve a kingdom that does not fail. That cannot fall. That never falters. And that is eternally secure. And the, the ultimate purpose of God's calling is that those of us redeemed humanity will become like him in holiness. And what this means as the, is that the gospel is not simply a one-time event. Say these words, Jesus, Jesus, save me, save me. Amen. Amen. Okay, you're good. And now you can live however you want. 
No, he's saying that we're called to be holy. We're called to emulate God in our life. And that single goal directs the life and the conduct of every true believer. And it changes everything. It changes the way we think about the world. If we truly believe the gospel, we think about the world differently. Suddenly, the popular culture of the world should hold less appeal. The famous artists aren't really that important to us. Being in line with the world really is not that important to us. Because the gospel changes the way we think because we now serve a different kingdom. It changes the way we speak. You know, the world and this culture's speech is filled with bitterness and anger and inappropriateness. Playing soccer years ago with people who we'll just say, didn't love Jesus. At times I was impressed at how they could use some of these four-letter words in incredibly creative ways. They just speak differently. But when the gospel takes hold of our heart, it even affects the way we talk so that our speech is always with grace, seasoned with salt, filled with compassion, and for the purpose of God. The way you talk should be different. It changes the way we work. As you go to your job and you talk to your coworkers, you ever ask them, why do you work? Why are you here? And you'll get answers like, because I have to be. I got bills. Or the old song, I'm working for the weekend. But when the gospel takes hold in our hearts, we understand that it changes the way we view work. Because no longer are we working simply to pay bills. No longer are we working for the weekend. No longer are we working just because we have to. We are working because it is an act of worship to our God. We understand that in creation, before sin even entered the world, God placed man in the garden and had him work. They were created for it to make God look as good as he really is. See, the gospel changes the way we think of work. It changes the way we interact with others. You know, we are told today, the world will tell us, our upbringing will tell us, and definitely our American values will tell us that as we interact with one another, we are to demonstrate how great we are and how much we know and how much we've accomplished. And our favorite topic is us. How often as we interact with others are we thinking, maybe not saying, but thinking, will you shut up so I can talk about me now? When the gospel takes hold, our interactions with others becomes different because we recognize that life's not about me. And everything that I've accomplished, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variables or shadow of turning. We understand that everything I've accomplished is not because I am great, but because God is good. And we begin to respond with humility towards one another. We begin to listen to each other. 
We begin to demonstrate love to one another. And when sinners sin, and when saints fail, we respond with forgiveness and grace towards one another in our interactions because we want to act like Christ. And as we get into the text, the second half of Romans deals with all of this and how we interact with authority and how we interact with the church and how we interact with family. And all of it can be summarized in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ Jesus has forgiven you. See, the gospel changes the ways that you interact with one another because you recognize that because I am forgiven, I can serve and forgive and love. We're called to be holy and it changes the way we view sin against us. The world will tell us, don't get mad, just get even. It's all good. I'll get them when they least expect it. That's what the world will tell us. The world will tell you, you have a right to be angry and you have a right to be bitter because you were wronged. But the gospel tells you, you are a sinner. So we get to Romans 3, we'll discover that there is none righteous, not one. There's none that understand. There's none that seek after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, not even one. And so all I deserve are the wages of my sin, the wrath of God. And so it helps me when I respond to the way others sin against me because I recognize it's exactly what I actually deserve. But by God's grace, I can forgive because God has forgiven me. It changes our entertainment. We live in a world that lives for entertainment. It is their anesthesia to get away from the struggles and the trials and the hardships of life. They immerse themselves in an imaginary world. And it's filled often with things that are anti-God and immoral and not right. But as believers, we don't have to live in that imaginary world. Because the kingdom of God is greater than any imaginary world could ever bring. I don't need a series of Avengers because I've got the great Avenger. I don't need to live in this imaginary world where everything ends right because I live in the real world where God has already said everything will end right. So while I can enjoy that entertainment, I don't have to let it immerse me. I don't have to live for it. In fact, often I don't have to waste my time with it. I can say no and live for the kingdom of God. It changes the way we view culture, politics, and news. The news is depressing. I don't know if you know that. Maybe you've caught this, but politics is kind of a mess. And if you live in that, and you immerse yourself in it, we could summarize all of it with the word anger. It's a whole lot of yelling. And the result is, if we immerse ourselves in that, we feel that way. And I've seen it so often on social media where people are just ah, angry, yelling, and screaming, and frustrated. But if we truly believe that the gospel is powerful, and that God has called us to be holy, it changes the way we view that. Because here's the deal. 
God puts them in place and God removes them. And one day the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is going to sit on his throne and it will be right. The end. So you know what? I don't have to worry about it. It's all going to work out because the gospel is true. The problem is sometimes I don't believe it. The gospel's powerful because it takes sinful man and makes him holy. It takes carnal man and makes him right with God. And it changes lives. Let's talk quickly about what they are. Again, they're marked by two things. We see first in verse 8 that they are marked by immense faith. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. This church is praised as having a worldwide impact. Now we need to define that idea. He says your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. And we need to understand that in first century Rome, they considered the Roman Empire to be the world. If you weren't inside the Roman Empire, you were not part of anything. You didn't exist. So as he speaks about the fact that their faith is proclaimed throughout the whole world, he is expressing joy that throughout this Mediterranean world, throughout the Roman Empire, everybody knows about the Romans' faith in God. What an incredible testimony. You know, some churches are famous because of their pastor or their architecture or their stained glass windows or their organs or their size or their wealth. But the church in Rome was famous because of its faith, because of what they believed. It was a fellowship of genuinely redeemed saints who loved God and lived for God so that their character was known everywhere. Here's the question. Is that us? How do we get there? How do we get to where we are known for our immense faith? It's a question I wrestled with all week. I came up with four things I think that are helpful to how we get there. One is a commitment and dependence on the word of God. We have to be committed to and depend on the word of God. We have to actually believe it and live it. This is what Second Timothy was all about as we worked through it. It can't just be a Sunday thing. We can't be content with simply being cultural Christians. Moral people who go to church on Sunday and think we're good because of that. We have to be completely committed and dependent on the word of God. When we do that, secondly, then I think it means that we have to have love and compassion for one another. We have to genuinely care and invest in one another. It means that we have to consistently speak to one another. I've said this before, we are a church that's really good about, about giving help. We are a terrible church about asking for it. We need to learn to ask for it when we need it and receive it and give it and minister to one another well. We ought to be a church that is known for, you know what? They help each other out. Let me brag on you for just a moment, though. 
Last night we had a get-together with our neighborhood again, just a couple times a year typically, and we're sitting in one of our neighbor's garage talking, and again, the conversation came up to when my wife and I and our boys moved into our house. They were astonished because of the amount of people that were there. I said, who were those people? I said, come tomorrow morning and find out. We need to love and care for one another. We need humble hearts marked by service and forgiveness. Even when we are filled with love and compassion for one another, we are a church filled with sinful people, meaning we will sin against one another. We will say and do things that hurt genuinely. We will fail each other. And when we do, we ought to be marked by forgiveness. By an understanding that we are God's people on the same mission. But also humble hearts marked by service. Willing to give up things that we want so that we can serve the church. Willing to give up things that we desire in order to serve one another in the church. Willing to be inconvenienced to serve one another in the church. And finally, willingness to leave our comfort zone and act in faith. Willing to take risks. Willing to do things that we feel like are a little bit above us. I'm not really qualified to do that. Willing to give it a go. And give it a shot so I can serve God. If we do these things, we can be marked by an immense faith. The community can call Cambria. And we know those people. Most people love God. It's evident in everything that they do. Secondly, they're marked by an encouraging faith. He says in verse 11, I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. You see, true faith encourages others. It's a faith that continually looks up. Points to God. It's marked by humility. It seeks to serve. It seeks to love. It seeks to care. I said there are two types of people in this world. People you're really excited when they come in and people you're really excited when they go out. We need to be the first. An encouraging faith. In the middle of crisis, when people are at their lowest, they need that encouraging faith. They don't need us coming alongside saying, you know, here's everything you did wrong and why you're in the mess you're in. They know that. They understand that. You know, you probably should have had a little better insurance. Yeah, thanks. I recognize that now. You know, you probably shouldn't have done that. You think? Thank you, Captain Obvious. They need encouragement. Listen, God loves you and I love you and we're here with you. In the middle of the challenge of health, sometimes we don't encourage faith because we don't know what to say. And honestly, sometimes the strongest thing we can say is simply being present. We're not looking for some amazing word that doesn't exist. Just come alongside and saying, I love you and I'm praying for you. Keep looking up. 
in the middle of relational struggles. When family and friends fail, they need the encouraging faith to come alongside and be reminded God doesn't fail. Is this us? Are we marked by an immense faith and an encouraging faith? The gospel's the answer to that. We have to believe it. We have to truly believe it and follow it. So the question is, do we believe the gospel's power to change lives? Or do you look at some people and think, yeah, yeah the gospel's not really for them. We live honestly in a community around us that it's very easy to think that. Yeah, you know, the gospel's powerful. I'm not quite sure it's that powerful. Do you believe the gospel's powerful? Do we demonstrate the gospel in our everyday life? Can I look at you and follow you and listen to you and talk to you and very quickly learn? They believe the gospel. They believe the gospel. For many, it's not long that I'm with you that I know that your grandparents. For many, it's not long that I'm with you that I know that you had successful businesses. For many, I know it's not long that I'm with you that I know that you love sports or you love camping. But how long do I have to be with you to know that you love God? Okay, I'll stop meddling. Are we known for our faith or for something else? We need to learn the power of the gospel. We'll stop there this morning. Next week, we'll look at the the book's purpose as it lays out the gospel. I'm excited about Romans. It is my favorite book of the Bible. I thought about pushing it off just because when we're done with it, we're done with it. And that makes me sad. But it's so good. We need it. We need the gospel. So I'd encourage you to be as, here as often as you can through the series. We'll all get beat up together and encouraged together. And hopefully come out on the other side more like Christ because of it. Let's pray. And we'll sing a hymn and enter into communion together. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel that it does change lives, that it can make us more like you. Lord, I pray that we would be marked as people of the gospel, as people who truly believe that you came to change us. Lord, I pray that our lives would make you look as good as you really are. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.